You may have noticed our new branding and our fabulous new website, thestagechefpodcast.com. Well, as musicians, do you ever finish your song, EP, album, um, are really happy with what you created, but think, ah, what now? What's next? What visuals suit the work I've created? What about the graphic design? Or even worse, you hire a photographer who you spend money on, but they don't quite land the vibe you're going for. Well, the answer is Who's Hughes, which is run by the creative genius that is Bastian Hughes, who is a brilliant musician in his own right and will take your nuanced story and create a vision around it. Such a clever process that Bastian has designed and really is the answer to your kind of what's next question. So if you head to bastianhughes.com, that's B A S T I A N. H-U-E-S dot com or Instagram Bastian Hughes um, uh, the first five people who mention Stage Left will get a free branding consultation session with him um, which I cannot tell you you know how valuable that stuff is really so um, do go over to BastianHughes.com because many many times we get sucked into a world of doing take after take or endlessly tweaking mixes um, for our work of art we've created and then just think well what's next what now well BastianHughes.com is your answer because it's a safe trusted pair of hands for the next stage of your work Lennon essentially says evolution is something that the animals did, but humans didn't evolve, they're reincarnated. At the same time, Dylan's a young earth creationist. He's going, well, the world is only 6,000 years old and you're going to find out when Jesus returns. They're both approaching it from completely different angles, but both of them go on record as very forcefully denying human evolution from monkeys, which Mm. I thought was a fantastic coincidence. Okay, welcome to the Stage Left podcast, lifting the veil on the music industry by telling the stories of those with a unique vantage point. This podcast exists to provide free educational content for young musicians entering an increasingly complex industry by telling the stories of some of the unsung heroes behind the success. To go to thestagelefpodcast.com for all episodes, featuring members of Radiohead, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Stone Roses, Elbow, Jungle, Queen, Earth, Wind and Fire, Guns and Roses, Fleetwood Mac, The 1975, The Zootons and Kraftwerk, who discuss their writing, recording and performing processes, as well as reflective interviews with the likes of Stuart Lee, Miles Copeland III, and musicians and producers who've worked in the studio and on stage with the Beatles, Bjork, Beyonce, Elvis and David Bowie. Today we are joined by author, musicologist and guitarist and sleeper and the wedding present, Dr John Stewart, who, as well as having songs he's co-written covered by Elvis Costello, has played on support tours with Radiohead and R.E.M. and has stood stage left as guitarist for K.D. Lang. Today we'll be discussing John's new book, Dylan, Lennon, Marks and God, the first dual biography written on its subjects, uh, which explores the DNA of John Lennon and Bob Dylan's songwriting and how their music in turn shaped the DNA of Western culture in future generations. John appeared as an early guest on the podcast about six years ago and uh, has since reformed Sleeper playing sold-out tours and releasing two further critically acclaimed albums. So it's a pleasure to say that our guest today on the Stage Left podcast is none other than Dr John Stewart. Thanks for joining us today, John. How's it going? Thank you very much for having me on. It's, I'm a big fan of the podcast and, yeah, congratulations on your success. I've seen it grow over the years and it's been a wonderful thing to witness. A great privilege to be back on. Thank you so much for those words and thank you for joining us. Um, I actually listened to when you appeared on, I think it's about episode 16 yesterday, and it was interesting that you were speaking of a time you weren't playing guitar and you, you said that you had been at a friend's wedding and that was the last time you picked up a guitar in anger. That was your words then. And really listening to it, it didn't seem that there was any kind of possibility in the short term that what has happened has played out. What's changed? Yeah, th- there was no possible. It was just wasn't on the horizon. 
and I hadn't picked up a guitar for a while. The friend's wedding, he's now got a grown-up child and is divorced. <laughs> so I won't say who it is, but it's a person who's in a band. And I, I went, right, that's it, that'll do me. I've played my friend's wedding, and I wanted to concentrate on this PhD I was starting at the time, considering, or the Masters I was doing at the time, actually. And um, just was working in education and teaching and... Just wanted to do something different for a while, get, get my writing better, my writing of books and, and articles and things. And so I put it down and then didn't really pick it up. And then got a phone call from Louise in 2017. And she said, we keep getting these offers to do stuff. What do you think? And, and I was like, if you want to do it, I'm game. I'll give it a go. And Andy... The drummer and sleeper, who is Louise's partner, just said, I don't really want to do it if you're not doing it. So I said, I'll certainly do it if you want to do it. Because Andy is just the nicest person in the world to be in a band with. Mm. So you can't really say no. If Andy McClure wants to do something and you're invited along, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. And it's not going to be stressy because he's just so chilled. He's the, per he's the chilled person everybody Every band needs. Every band needs a creative and, and an angsty person and a chill person. And um, and so where did so, Kieran Pepper fit into this? Because well, Kieran Pepper, for, for listeners uh, who will be familiar with older episodes, was the drummer in The Prodigy for some mm. time, and he's now playing bass. Yeah, sleep. he's playing bass and sleeper. And he, when we first started working together at the music college we work at, he was so sweet, Kieran. He's another super nice person to be in a band with, really. So it's great having two of them. And uh, he, I was just massively impressed by the fact he'd been in The Prodigy for 10 years and some of the shows he'd done, huge shows in Russia, Red Square and things like that. In fact, I'd interviewed him for a book article I'd mm. written on being a musician, playing large gigs. And then that had been published in, in, a, in a Routledge collection of academic essays and stuff. And it's just, he's just a great person to work with. He's so positive. And he did... When we first met, one of the first things he said was, look, I'm a big fan of the band, and if you ever want to do anything, just let me know I'm there. And then 15 years later, we were like, okay, we're doing something, do you want to do it? Because we had originally, I think the idea of working with, with Deed, our original bass player, really appealed, but he lives the other side of the country, and Lou and Andy have kids, and we were all in the same town, and it was just, it was like, have you got an hour on Wednesday night to do some rehearsing or writing? And I'm free because I haven't got kids, so I can be more flexible. And it, we just couldn't do that around a fourth band member the other side of the country. And then Kieran was free. So it just seemed to make sense. And he's another very cool person to be in a band with, not only because he was in The Prodigy for so long, but mm. because he's just a really nice person, as, as you've interviewed him. And the first kind of rehearsal or meet-up, mm. talk us through that. And, and what was the first song that you did and how did you decide that and, and well, in which ways did it feel different? It, it was a tricky one because we hadn't played together for so long and we didn't book a very nice-sounding room and everybody turned up full. And it, what, it, it, was, it came together pretty quickly. Sleeper songs aren't massively complex. They're based around the character of Louise and her lyrics and her melodies. And so you get that right and it's going to be fine. But it, I think the what we had to relearn was how do we best support Louise and help her produce the goods as the front person, which is probably something it took us a while to learn the first time around as well. But once we got the hang of that and we realised which are the better rooms to rehearse in in town, they came together pretty quickly. The first time, I have to admit, 
was pretty shaky, especially as it had been so long since I picked up a guitar. But it came back pretty quickly. Unfortunately, like I said, the songs aren't that complex. So I couldn't have done The Wedding Present if I hadn't done The Sleeper Reunion. That mm. wouldn't have happened. That's a bit more... Because of some kind of classic parts on those albums. But yeah, it, so it, was, it certainly did. Yeah, it was like a reintroduction to guitar again. And then and then it all went from there. Well, one thing it was I'm just interested... a great joy, to be honest with you. Yeah. I t- the thing about the Sleeper Reunion that really was noticeable was that so many of Louise's songs are so positive and heartwarming. And so the reunion was a celebration of these songs. Whereas with, with a lot of other bands, they're kind of angsty or moody and sleeper whenever that we were always light-hearted and fun so that meant the reunion just made sense because it was just getting together and celebrating a song with a big chorus and a simple riff and some happy lyrics so that was the joyous part it was like the material carried it through in a way because they were all just such happy songs one of the one of the first in fact i think it was the first single i ever bought was um, in Upminster on cassette, Nice Guy Eddie. So what mm. year would that have been, 95 or 96? 96, I think, yeah. Right. You, yeah. And, and I was listening to the back catalogue yesterday, and it's just, you know, so many banging tunes back then. And the last album, I, I was so impressed. It was quite, a, quite a, a shift from what you'd done previously. And even Louise's voice is slightly different as well. It's a really interesting record. Yeah, there's two we've put out. One is one is a suite of brand new songs and then one is a bunch of songs that we recorded in the early 2000s that never got released. Ah. And so this time tomorrow. So the modern age, this time tomorrow is is the stuff that had been previously recorded really? wow. and a lot of it was some of it was revocaled. I think most of it was probably revocaled actually. And and then the modern age is the is the all new songs it was the first one they came out with and what was cool about that was i had i'd actually wanted to start with the material we'd left unreleased first time around and louise was like i, I want to write all new stuff because i think she had more to say and she did a really good job of it and they sound like classic sleeper but different as well that was a comment most people had it's a really pitched out well pitched album in that it's the same but different, which is quite difficult to do. But I guess it was the having the rest from it for so long meant that it was bound to sound a little bit the same but also a little bit different. Did you find going back on the road and touring and gigs, that must have been such a, a nostalgia trip in some ways and also quite hard to get your head around, I'd imagine. It was pretty scary at first, but but a lot has changed. Like, the equipment's all different. It's all much lighter. The amps are much lighter. <laughs> no one's carting around Marshall 4x12s and huge cabs and heads anymore. So everything's portable, and the, the, technology, the technology's great. Everything sounds great. And so in that respect, it was a lot easier than it used to be. And it's just good fun because you haven't really got anything to prove anymore. You're no longer stressing about what your midweek's going to be on your next single or who's selling out the, the biggest gig in town in the little bands in the scene you're part of. It's like I said, it's a celebration of the songs and a chance to present some new songs that, that are equally, hopefully, as good and as, as entertaining. And and ultimately, just a great chance to catch up with people after a few years. And And I think, for me personally... It's just been a great privilege to work in a band with Louise and Andy and so to be able to do that with them another go around, that's just been a dream come true really because the first time it's always pretty stressy and you're still in your career arc. Mm. The second time around you've done all that so you get to enjoy it a little bit more. You've nothing left to prove to anyone and you just want to have some happy memories from it and you treasure the people that you're with and just 
you just I think you just value it a lot more and you're a little bit older and wiser and more mature and not so much of an idiot second time around so you hopefully make fewer mistakes something you've spoken about a lot in your past and you spoke about it when we appeared when you appeared uh, a few years ago is your challenges around alcohol addiction mm. in the 90s and you've done some great work and some, some really interesting stuff and some guardian articles on uh, the benefits of uh, cbt compared to say aa and this and we talked about in the previous episode mm. if people want to dip into it i did think how was it going back on the road, those gig days, passing the time? What advice would you give to people in a similar position to manage those days that in the past might have been, right, we've done a sound check, let's have a few drinks. Now, how do you pass that time and what advice would you yeah, give someone? Yeah, it was loads better this time. That was what I was alluding to about not being an idiot was not being drunk. So doing tours sober is fantastic. And what you realise is not everybody's pissed all the time backstage. Some bands are. We did a kind of a collective tour with a bunch of bands and a couple of those were like still on the lash. <laughs> 30 years later, wow. and you're thinking, well, how are you still alive? And some of them, we would play dates, club dates, around about the same time they were touring, and we'd half expect to walk in the dressing room and find one of them asleep under the table from the night before. Wow. But I haven't been in that position. Touring sober is just way more fun. You make fewer mistakes musically. You can, when you do want to change things up, you can make those decisions. You can relate to people better. You're on time. You're not hung over. You remember stuff. You don't spend so much money. You eat. And also you're not constantly chasing the next drink or the next whatever. You're just able to enjoy it and be in the moment. And, and you're more reliable and hopefully more useful to have around. Uh, it's just a better way to live for me and I think for a few other people who choose that life. And I'm not a critic of AI. I think it's great. It certainly helped me. But also I, I think it's good to give airtime for other ways that people can find help. There's quite a lot, whether it's smart recovery or very life-ring or the forms of help that are out there that can work alongside AA too. And, yeah, I just I guess like living healthily is the new or a current fashion. Back in the 90s, it was all about being elegantly wasted and bands were playing around with that old jazz trope about, ooh, we're doing heroin and stuff, which never really appealed to me. But there was plenty of big bands from the time messing around with that and I just thought, what the hell are you doing? Today, I don't think anybody would do that. It will be so uncool to do that in a band. I can't think of anybody post Pete Doherty that's mm. that's toyed with that the heroin trope. Interesting, um, yeah. Which I think was a hangover from the days of fifties jazz and stuff. When the idea was it, you threw drugs, you became a better creative. It's way better creating, but and uh, you just got more. I think touring today as well. When you're a band today, you you've got to look after the merch and do all that. You, be responsible and not let people down. The margins are tighter than it might have been 30 years ago. So it all, it all helps just being a little bit more in control and just more a rounded human being that people want to be around. There's some advantages to that generally. What were the highlights of the comeback gigs? Was there anything particular that sticks out that you... Yeah, we did a bunch of London shows. We did... Uh, Shepherds Bush Empire, which we'd done before many times. That was our first big London show back. That was fantastic. We sold it out, and it's just such a beautiful venue. You're very close to the audience at that show, which is fantastic, even people on the third row up. And it always sounds good. And one of the highlights has been the same 
crew working at the venues from 20 years ago. Wow. Which is Sepultura Empire and Kentish Town Forum, which was the other big heart of the London experience. I think I've done that four times. I was sleeping in the wedding present. But some of the great regional venues like Northampton, the Road Menders, which I always loved, same guy doing the monitors 20 years later. And I'm like, hey, I remember you from 20 years ago. Yeah, did your first show here in 1995 and all that. And yeah, just those kind of things, really. It's seeing the same venues, a lot of them still being there is really good. A nice thing to see that those things have survived. And, and again, the touring that we've done post-pandemic, if we, are, if we can now say that we're post-pandemic, has been great because a lot of those venues have survived. So there's a lot of positives in, in and around that. And going forward, I'm slightly worried that so many of those venues do have such a reliance on heritage artists five ten years from now when the artists from the 90s aren't touring anymore i'm not quite sure how those venues are going to survive in fact i did a book chapter with david gedge on on small local venues past present and future and that was one of the things we talked about what happens when those heritage artists that are keeping those venues going stop touring that's a slight worry but right now i think we're in a position of strength even with what's happened i think the government support has been very helpful to a lot of venues i've known some venues do really well from it and the fact they've all survived it's it's very easy to knock the current government obviously but they did do a lot to help support the arts and i think everything else notwithstanding it is worth acknowledging that mm-hmm. huge donation wasn't mm-hmm. it no- I want to get onto the book, and my segue into the book is, bear in mind we'll be talking about John Lennon quite a lot. What is the mysterious opening chord of Feeling Peaky? Yeah, I can't actually remember. We have played it live, and we just basically did a minor nine with a... Yeah, it's a minor nine, I think. E minor nine. Was it a, a, a deliberate tribute to Hard Day's Night? <clears throat> e minor nine with E minor seventh with a nine on top. Yes, you called me out. That's basically what it was. It was us trying to do a sort of jarring chord at the front. That that I, I think any song that has that at the front is a tribute to Hard Day's Night. And in fact, there's so many of the things the Beatles did pop up in contemporary music even today probably less so going forward because so much current music is produced in the digital realm never never comes outside of a computer but certainly for anybody record, recording guitar bass and drums and song vocals with a melody and up until maybe about 2010 you couldn't not be influenced by the beatles and if you're a lyricist you've got to be influenced by bob dylan and if you're not influenced by bob dylan as a lyricist you might want to listen to some of his lyrics, because then you will be, because it's hard. His, his, his lyrics are so profound, it's almost impossible not to take them on board if you're involved with writing words for songs. So between them, I think the way the Beatles shaped the music of bands and the way that Dylan shaped the, the, the words of singers is just the fundamental building block of music for the past 40 years, and you put it very neatly in the introduction, the DNA of contemporary popular music is, for me, Dylan and Lennon, ultimately. And even if you look at people like um, Nas, the uh, rap artist, he, he specifically was once asked, are you influenced by the Beatles? And his response is, who isn't influenced by the Beatles? Yeah. Which is obviously fascinating. So in regards to the book itself, why did you feel the need to write the book? And why does the world need to hear it? I was doing a PhD and I wanted to do it on protest music so I started with my two favourite songwriters, Bob Dylan and John Lennon, and I just couldn't get beyond them. So the protest music thing turned into a, 
a different a chapter for a book. And then I returned to Dolan and Lennon and I, I thought, okay, how do we approach this and make something substantial out of it in terms of a doctorate? And there's an idea called dual biography, which is this notion that an individual biography can be very interesting and helpful in understanding somebody's life. But a dual biography, if you take two people who are co-related in some way or comparable in some way, then you actually get a better understanding of the two as individuals by comparing them than you would by looking at them on their own. And that comes from a writer called Eloise Knapp Hay, who is a, a literary theorist from America in the 50s. And she wrote uh, or argued for the merits of dual biography. And there's been a few interesting ones, Hitler and Stalin, lots based around American presidents, several around Charles Darwin. And um, I, there haven't been that many in popular music. And for me, it was just obvious that the Dylan and Lennon one needed to happen. And if I didn't do it, somebody else was going to do it. So I started off by mapping out their lives and where they intersect and found a few interesting things there. And then I went back to this protest music idea and I looked at how they viewed the Vietnam War or the militarism of the 1960s and 70s in general because I wanted to compare their politics around an issue. And it seemed that an international politics issue such as the military-industrial complex, the Vietnam War and other things that were happening around the world at the time where the West was intervening military largely in, in what was then the developing world was a good thing to compare. You couldn't really compare them on domestic politics because they're from different countries. And then I spun that out a little bit and looked at their understanding of the past because they both come from a specific heritage. Lennon is the Northern English working-class Liverpudlian background, and that has a lot of ties to the British Empire and the particular time that he came into public knowledge was just at the time the empire was collapsing and the Beatles kind of became the British cultural imperialists going around the world, spreading the message of peace and love as, a, as the British empire was collapsing, which I thought was interesting. Mm. And then Dylan, his, the ties to his heritage are really this, the philosophy and literature of North America as it developed in the 1800s, which has several strands, but one that's often overlooked is transcendentalism which is an American literary tradition and philosophical religious tradition based around nature and the individual. And that seemed to me to be what Dylan was about. And it seemed that lots of writers about Dylan had missed that, largely because they were writing from the British perspective. And I used two people to summarise or, or as a kind of a theoretical coat hanger for those approaches. The protest music... Uh, I used an American Marxist sociologist called R. Serge Denisov, and he had this really interesting analysis of how protest music works, and I used that to to peel apart Dylan and Lennon's different approach to protest music. Dylan becomes less interested in it, Lennon becomes more interested in it, and that's the story of, of their career, their arc politically. So I used Denisov's work on protest music as a framework for that. And then there's American uh, Marxist literary theorist called Frederick Jameson who looks at class and history in literature. And I used him to understand the heritage that Dylan and Lennon had drawn on, particularly the 19th century stuff, whether it was empire for Lennon or the North American literary traditions for Dylan. And then 
the last section, so that's the Marx bit, using two Marxist academics to to compare their work with this kind of theoretical framework, which helps produce a better understanding of what's going on, I think. And then the last part, I took it from a single issue to broader history and then to actually what it means to be a human being, because I think they ask profound questions about that. So I look at their different belief systems, and for many it could be spirituality, but in other areas it's just general belief systems and how we arrive at different beliefs. And for that I use an evolutionary psychologist called Andy Thompson, who's a contemporary writer in America, and he's got some very interesting things to say about where beliefs come from, particularly faith-based ones and ideas about the supernatural, which both artists express in lots of different ways. So the last section of the book, the God bit, is not a religious text. It's confused a few people because people think it's a religious book, but it's not. It's actually written from a, a more sciencey point of view. I have, I'm someone who has had faith, but I've also been an atheist, and I would describe myself today as, as an atheist as well. And so it's a more scientific, psychological approach to our faith mechanisms, and it compares how theirs work. Dylan's obviously comes out in his conversion to evangelical Christianity. Lennon's is slightly more subtle. He's singing overtly about not believing in God and imagine no religion, but at the same time, he's very interested in Vedic philosophy, really interested in reincarnation, Egyptology, and lots of other areas of the supernatural that frankly are, you know, questionable if you're if you have a kind of a materialist, naturalistic, atheist worldview. So there's quite a lot to compare there as well, even despite their different approaches to faith and belief and God, whatever that means. And so it moves from one issue to the patterns of history to actually what it, the great existential questions of what it means to be human through various songs and statements that they made in their lives. The ripple effect of what they did is something I was fascinated and exploring in my own mind as I was reading it. So if you think about the million people who marched before the Iraq war, I was thinking, I wonder what that number or figure would have been if it hadn't been for some of the protest songs that have been written a generation and a half before. And I also, and you may disagree with this, and, and this may be a view that other people have had, but there was so many, there was essentially the message to young people then was we need change, we want change. And when we, when that age group then got to become the largest democratic of voters in America, they did vote for a change, which was Donald Trump, <laughs> years and years later. Yeah. Now, you may not agree with that, but I did wonder, essentially, when Trump was voted in, it was simply a vote of, oh, we don't want the Clintons again, we want a vote for change. And that had been ingrained from that 60s and 70s culture of not being, not really trusting who the politicians were, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really fascinating, it's really fascinating to think about how they influence what came next. and um, Still do today. Imagine was played at the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics again. So you can't do an Olympics now without playing Imagine. It's happened all. every New Year's Eve at the ball drop in, mm -hmm. in Times Square. They play Imagine. Someone sings Imagine before the ball drops. So Lennon's, even though he died 40 years ago, Lennon's ingrained in our cultural consciousness. And he's a perfect example of, he's the last guy writing traditional protest songs. Dylan abandons it. Mm. And, and the, the, the sociologist guy, Denisov, he, he divides protest songs into kind of traditional campaign songs and then more 60s introspective 
I, songs that don't really have a solution uh, to the problem that they state. And Dylan's the uh, Lennon's the last guy writing these campaign. Let's all get together and do a thing together. Here's a problem. Here's a solution. If we act together as a group, we can make a change. And there's been so few of those songs since then that he, the music he still wrote 40 years ago is still relevant. Mm. Give peace a chance and imagine and things like that. So that's absolutely true. And I do think, I suppose, the challenge to the that generation grew up and they elected Clinton and then Obama. I think yeah, that's what happened twice, four times in total. So that that was possibly a consequence of what Peter Lennon and the people around him did. And he, he was the most famous musician in the world, you could argue, songwriter in the world. Certainly the Beatles were the biggest band the world's ever seen and probably ever will see. And he used his fame to try and stop a war, yeah. which is an incredible thing, even at the point where he was suffering death threats and the famous incident where they throw a firecracker on stage in his last tour in America and it goes off, it's really loud. You can hear the recording of it today on YouTube. And everyone turns around expecting him to fall over, having been shot. That was 1966, and he took an, another 14 years before it finally happened, but he paid the ultimate price for that. So the legacy of what he did... <clears throat> I think is profound and the obstacles that he and Yoko faced, which were, you know, based in all kinds of racism and sexism towards her, which wouldn't, you would, wouldn't be expressed today. It would be outrageous to treat Yoko the way she was treated at the time. Yeah. So he, I think very much he was a forerunner of the modern world and did a lot to set that in place. But also, as I argue in the book, he's not a Marxist. He he flirted with it for a year, but ultimately he's interested in the conscious underworld that we, the subconscious mind, and change yourself from within before you change. That's the best way to change the world around you, he argued, and that's what Imagine's about. Imagine is literally think a better world into existence, which is not, what Marx's politics, he was a materialist, he was about doing it and making change happen in the world outside. And, and Lenin ultimately rejected that. Dylan absolutely wasn't a Marxist. He was a, he's an American, probably a lot more conservative than most people give him credit for. And as he says in his memoir, his favourite 60s politician was Barry Goldwater, who was a very right-wing conservative mm, Republican. And, and he, his message is family, nature, the individual, the opposite of what Marx was trying to achieve, which was to appeal to the industrial working class as a group. And uh, so, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot to learn from both of them today. And we've moved away a little bit from them as canonical artists. There's a, a big movement, quite understandably, to move away from the study of these canonical old white men in popular music and all kinds of different culture, cultural endeavours. But I think what they had to say was remains important and influential. And they did have a huge exchange at the time with people from all kinds of different cultural backgrounds, a massive influence on Stax and Motown. And it was a, it was a backwards and forwards thing. They influenced each other. So they, were, they played a huge part in the shaping of contemporary culture from all elements of society, not, not just pop music. They were just so huge at the time. It's impossible to underestimate how big they were. It's very difficult, I think, for contemporary people to appreciate just how huge the Beatles' influence was at the time culturally. 
So it's important equally not to forget that if you want to understand the contemporary world thing. You introduced me years ago, sat in one of your lessons to Steve Cropper, the world of Steve Cropper, and he came on the podcast a few years ago. And whilst I didn't explore this with him, a good friend of mine, James Dell, who listeners of this will know from Goldheart Assembly, was invited to Steve Cropper's house and interviewed him. And it's yet to be released, but he does explore the whole thing about them recording. And he revealed that it's actually Lennon and McCartney agreed that they would write songs together under the band Lennon McCartney Cropper. Wow. Yeah, wow. Pretty amazing. Imagine what that would have sounded like there. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I discussed in the book is the, the possible McCartney-Dylan collaboration that almost happened a few years ago. And that fascinates think... me. So that's right at the end of the book. And I was yeah. as fascinated with that as everything. How much money would they have made? I don't understand why they didn't go through with it, really. And also, like, musically, you think about Dylan, what he contributes to songs. It's quite similar to Lennon. So the McCartney Dylan they might have been an interesting foil for each other certainly wouldn't have been as sugary as the McCartney Michael Jackson collaborations mm. were that would have been really interesting you know they would have they would have they, that's like a nailed on number one single at the time if they'd have pulled it off but it's, it wasn't well, to be I'll encourage everyone to buy the book and, and, and read the entire chapter on that but Dylan did say some not very nice things back in the 60s about McCartney as well as saying some other nice things and I it struck me that maybe He's held that close to his heart, McCartney, and doesn't want to entertain that. But Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing about the Dylan-Lennon relationship as well, because the obvious one is Dylan Harrison, and they were big mates. They yeah. were in a band together. Trevor Wilburys and all that, yeah. And Dylan McCartney didn't quite share the same worldview or have so much in common, but the Dylan-Lennon thing, Lennon's the erstwhile leader of the Beatles, the, the person who's pushing things along in the early days and does so much to shape... Dylan's approach to things like literature persuades him to finish, through the success of his own books, persuades him to finish Tarantula and things like that. And and it's the Beatles, I think, that have a huge influence on Dylan going back to being in a band again. And equally, Dylan's lyrics have a massive influence on John Lennon, such that he ended up writing incredibly D- Dylan-esque songs. And, and then Dylan wrote a song full time around critiquing Lennon's Lennon's the derivative nature of of Lennon's songwriting so it's a very much more complex they may not have been in the studio together quite so many times I think maybe twice they were in an opportunity had an opportunity to, to record together and it never quite happened whereas obviously with Dylan and Harrison recorded many times together but the Dylan and Lennon relationship is just that little bit more fractious there's a little mm. bit more to it and they're both these kind of figureheads of their different areas of popular music that it just seemed to be an obvious one to look at. When you say to someone that you're a fan of Bob Dylan, like I do, what do you do? How do you respond eloquently when one in four of those on average says, oh, I can't stand his voice, though? You, well, there are some songs that you can play that where he kind of sings properly on. A lot of them are obviously outtakes. And some of the ones, around about the time he was imitating the Beatles, he starts singing properly when he's first working with the band. Some of the uh, folky outtakes... There's a, song, there's a song called Seven Curses where he sings this old story about a corrupt, wicked judge and a horse thief. And it's just so beautifully put together. So I just generally play them something like that where he's singing from the heart and, and wanting it to sound good. And then people will either like it or they don't. I guess he's got the voice of an old man in a 21-year-old's body and today most people don't want to hear that kind of stuff, so... 
It is a challenge to listen to, but then the great art should be a little bit challenging. Yeah. And if you, if you are at all are aware of what he's singing and the words he's passing before you, it's just outstanding. It's so profound. Some of his music, it, it's literature at the highest level, and you can't knock that. I think we're all a bit stupider if we don't really take that on board. It, it, and it, it's very easy to forget about in the age of Twitter... It's very easy to forget what literature can be. But he was a master at it. In my mind, there's no question he's the greatest lyricist has ever been in popular music. And that's why so many of his songs have been covered so many times and and will continue to be so. There's no right or wrong answer to this, obviously, but how do you think Lennon's career would have played out? Yeah, you mentioned the protest song. I mean, imagine if John Lennon was still alive and and we were protesting that the Iraq War and he showed he would have played that. He would have mm. been there and I'm there, do a gig in front of him, possibly a million people in in New York. Maybe he could have stopped the Iraq War. <laughs> Maybe we wouldn't have ISIS today. As a result, it's uh, who knows. I think the the political fate of a lot of those figures has been fascinating to watch because they've all grown old at the same time everybody else from that generation has. So some of them have been surprising, the, the Johnny Rottens and the Eric Claptons. They've upset the younger generation by, I think, like Bob, being a little bit more conservative than most people realise. And maybe that's just a product of getting older, I don't know. But, yeah, it's impossible to say what, what would happen with Lennon. Yoko's kept the flame burning pretty effectively. She's always maintained that radical streak and she's always been someone who's been out there and doing campaigning in lots of different and innovative ways and she stayed on message throughout. So I suspect he would have been aligned with her, mm. I would imagine, but it's impossible. It's a sliding doors moment, isn't it? Yeah. Who knows? Follow us on Instagram at the Stage Left Podcast where you'll see behind-the-scenes photos from our interviews with members of Oasis, Queen and Madness. Um, it's interesting looking at their career, both of them, how they flirted with the idea of faith um, and God. And John has a song called God. Obviously, we talked about Imagine There's No Heaven, etc., etc. And with Dylan, he did a number, it was three or four albums, wasn't there? The kind of the Christian era that he went through, which actually gets derided quite a lot. But actually, some of the melodies in there are really nice. Some of the lyrics are maybe questionable compared to some of his other stuff. What's your kind of overview of where that was coming from and where they where would John Lennon be now in regards to his thoughts about... I remember those those Dylan records coming out and they were a real shocker at the time and, and I hated them. I just loathed them because I was dyed-in-the-wool atheist. And now I have a different view of them. I, I listen back to them and they sound great. And I think for the first time, Bob Dylan wanted to sound good in the studio. Most of his stuff prior to that is first, second or third take and you capture a moment and the song's working or it's not and he moves on. And you can hear mistakes on all these records. There's very few bits of production. The snare shot at the start of the Rolling Stone with a reverb on it. Poof. And then the song starts. One of the few examples of conscious audio production on a Bob mm. Dylan record before he has a religious transformation. Now he's making music for God and he wants it to sound brilliant. And so he spends a lot longer in the studio on it and, and they do sound great. And the songs are more complex. It's in the garden, which he's done live loads of times and which he himself has said is one of his own favourite songs that he wrote. Musically, it's much more complex. There's loads going on. And so I now I look back at that and I think it's just a different aspect of who he was and that, that was in him and he expressed it. And it was probably in him for a lot longer than people realised it was a huge shock to people like me who didn't really understand Dylan at the time but if you look at his material it's full of 
messages from the Old Testament and New Testament, he had a profound understanding of that kind of stuff. And so it was probably just a natural progress as people hit a crisis in life. In previous podcast, we talked about alcoholism and recovery. So I, can't, I have a, every sympathy for that. People hit difficult periods in their life and they need some support. And in in many ways, faith or religion or some kind of organised belief system, is it can be very helpful to people. And I'd much rather people were on their knees sober in church than on their knees drunk in the gutter, ultimately. And with Lennon... He had his own strange belief systems, often equally as implausible as evangelical Christianity. And like a lot of these things, I found these moments when they were potentially in the recording studio together or discussed the time they appear on film once together. And they had these moments of similarity in their faith. So they both go through periods where they decry religion and then they both go through periods where they have different types of religion. And remarkably, in the late 1970s, both of them go on record as very forcefully denying human evolution from monkeys, which Mm. I thought was a fantastic coincidence. Dylan, because he's a young Earth creationist, and Lennon, through through the Vedic tradition, he's, you know, there's several strands in in Indian religion, but uh, or the Vedic traditions of that particular branch of faith, but... One of them essentially says evolution is something that, that the animals did, but humans didn't evolve, that they're reincarnated. So he very forcefully in an interview says, I don't believe we came from monkeys, that's nonsense. And Just before he died, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and at the same time, Dylan's going, well, the world is only 6,000 years old and you're going to find out when Jesus returns. And that, so they're both approaching it from completely different angles. And the great irony being... Just at that time, anthropologists in in the Rift Valley in Ethiopia have discovered the missing link, named it Lucy after one of John's songs, (laughs) Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, because that's the tape they've got playing in the camp where they are. And so as denying human evolution, the whole world is hearing about this early hominin that stood four foot tall and is the link between us the first proof of the link between humans and monkeys that Lennon is so forcefully denying. So I'm interested in, having been through faith and and religion and come out of it the other side, I guess I was interested in how those beliefs work. And not just religious ones, but political ones. People have very strong political beliefs. And it's quite possible that the two years Lennon spent as a revolutionary Marxist getting involved with the Fourth International and then various political campaigners in America, he was just in a different type of faith. If you are a Marxist, which I'm not, the book's called Dylan, Lennon, Marx and God, and I'm not a Marxist and I'm not religious. But if you are a Marxist, you're giving the same kind of power to this drunk German refugee who was a really strong political writer in the 1850s and 60s, as you would to Jesus, the Galilean Mm. Jewish prophet at at the turn of the first... Well, the, the original turn of the millennia in the years 30 to 35 in in and around Jerusalem. You're giving them this kind of mystical property to be able to foretell the future and see exactly what's wrong with what's going on in the world. And so that Lenin's politics, I think, are aligned with his faith, the belief mechanisms that we have. I spent a long time involved in left-wing politics, and I now look at those belief mechanisms as much the same as religious ones in some ways. And you go into certain 
political meetings and you can see it. And and there's some very interesting... Obviously, there's a lot wrong with the world, but I don't think we necessarily got the wherewithal to even oftentimes point out what the solutions are because we don't really understand how belief systems work. We're not as evidence-based as we think we are in a lot of these things. Dylan has said in the past that he keeps tabs on biographies that come out. Did it ever play into your mind that he might be reading what you were writing? And do you think subconsciously that might have impacted what you wrote? No, I tried not to think about that because it was written as a PhD and then I rewrote it slightly for the book. And you have to send a copy. So he has got a copy and I had to license the lyrics. I licensed the lyrics for 18 songs for £600, which was tricky because I had to get the final sign-off on the text. So I had the contract and I signed it. But he wants a check. He's an old, he runs this old music publishing company out of a P.O. box in New York. And like a lot of American old-school businesses, they only accept checks. You can't wire money. So I've got to get a check in dollars, which is impossible if you live in the U.K. and I haven't got an American bank account. And so I just kept putting it on the back burner. And I've got this great deal, 18 songs for what is effectively 600 quid. It's pretty good for a book license. But he always encourages people to write about him. And then just as I'm about to get it all together, I finally got text the approval from Cambridge University Press. He sells his copyright to Universal Music. So then I've got to have a bunch of lawyer meetings where they're going, yeah, Universal are going to put a naught on the end of that. So then I have to write... I wrote Universal a long email essay about the book and what I was saying and what I was trying to achieve and... And I got one word reply from the head of publishing at Universal who controls his account, just says approved. <laughs> that was it. And I had to go to another lawyer and go, is that sufficient? And there's a whole Latin term that means you can't mislead people in communication. So I can legally take that as, yes, that's approved. I'm able to then get the, get them, I had some friends in America get the money to his office. And then I sent him a copy of the book. So whether or not he reads it, I don't know. I hope he does, but I'm sure he'll spot some mistakes in it. But I, I don't know. Yoko wanted text approval before she would allow me to cite John Lennon lyrics. And I didn't want to do that prior approval because I am quite critical of them both. And I feel it needed to be honest and and truthful. And because I'm, I'm also a fan as well. No one's perfect, are they? And she also wanted a shed load of money. So that wasn't going to happen because there's not a lot of money in academic books. So, yeah, I, I didn't write it with a view of him reading it. I did have to send the sections of lyrics I wanted to use with the text either side. So that section of it, I made sure what was in there was well-worded and stuff. But once you've got the approval, you're done, really. So I would he gets written about so much. If I was him, I wouldn't be reading every book mm. written about me. Yeah. But maybe one, because he is a fan of Lennon, he's written some songs mm. about John Lennon. Well, John yeah, Lennon he's yeah. been to the house in Liverpool. Yeah. So maybe he's, ooh, okay, I'll check that one out. Maybe you will have a look. I don't know. He's got my email if he ever wants to send me a critique of it. That would be Surreal. beyond your wildest dreams too. The, the people in his office were very helpful and very friendly and can't say enough about the people that I had to deal with there. And yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a bit of a journey. Writing about someone who's still alive is tricky because you can libel people. You can't libel dead people, but you, you, need, you do need to be careful what you say. And, and also you want to be true to the... You want them to read it and feel, even if you're not, it's not a hagiography, but there's an element of truth in it from how they see it. You mentioned the gunshot snare on Rolling Stone as the intro. It's just made me think that you actually also touch upon 
Rocky Raccoon possibly being a bit of a pastiche or parody of Dylan's material. And that's got the gun yes. shot, isn't it? Hasn't mm. it as well? I've not, never seen that before. I think that's really interesting. But what's a bit spooky about this is I was writing my notes yesterday about sleeper stuff. And when I was listening to the previous interview, we talked about Nice Guy Eddie, and that's got a real gunshot mm. snare all the way through it. Can you remember actually recording that and how you achieved that snare sound? Because it's quite unusual. <clears throat> yeah, it was a real rhythm-led song, and a lot of the sleep stuff's not driven by that. It's more to do with the band working a groove out and working around Louise, and I think one of the things about Eddie that makes it work quite well in a disco, I think that's a drum machine, that sound. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to check with Andy to be honest with you. And it was that quite a lot of times we sit listening because we're going to do the It Girl, and we sat listening to tracks going, hey, "Did you play this? Did I play that?" Wow, really? Yeah. yeah. And I guess does it, it take a lot of time to work out? Okay, how do I get that exact tone, and how do I get us to sound like us again? Is, is a lot of thought? Have, does a lot? Of, is that a lot of effort to do that, or does that come? Back in the day, you had a bag of pedals and a couple of amps. So once you worked out who played what and where it was on the neck, it comes together pretty well. After that, and I, I do tend to remember pedal settings and combinations and how we got sounds because for me that's the interesting thing, and it's a very visual thing. It's like it's a big muff on full or whatever, or through a wah wah with the pedal stationary and that kind of thing. And I was really into that at the time. And I was hugely influenced by Graham Coxon, who is not only a genius guitarist and just a thousand times better as a player than I could ever be, but he also plays pedals really well. So I'd watched him when we toured with him and I'd seen what he does on stage and I just wanted to get a tiny percentage of that on the record. And it's just things like playing a pedal with a battery run out will change the sound and now <laughs> if you buy a, a posh power source there will be one of those outputs where there's an option to have reduced power as if it's a fading battery wow so there's a sleeper song on the first album where there's a wah-wah with the battery dying stationary and um the wah pedal's not moving it's just used as a filter which you can now 20 30 years on you can recreate that because it turns out other people had the same idea anyway. So, yeah, I tend to remember a lot of the pedals and the settings. And then once you, you can work out the parts by ear because there's always like an open string ring and that tells you what position you're playing in or the sound of the, the, the strings and stuff. So once you get there, it's not quite like riding a bike. And unfortunately, like I said, sleep is not massively complex music. Yeah, but there is a... It all it begins with the debate... Who played that line? Who's, who's doing the rhythm there? Is that Louise or me or Andy? Who's played that melody? What instrument was it on? And once you get that, you're back in the room and you're fine. We can't get the original master tapes. Uh, really? Yeah, Sony have got them. And they, one of the problems with analogue tape is it deteriorates over time, so you have to bake it in order to be able to digitise it. So for the It Girl, it's, it, there's a huge fee for baking your tapes. And uh, we haven't done it. So we can't get the stems, the original recording. So we just, we're like everybody else, just listening to the CD, trying to concentrate and pick things out. Well, one of the great moments I'd see in amongst all this was when we did a Tim Burgess listening party mm. and just sat and listened to record front to back. And Stephen Street was on the Twitter stream and Lou and Andy were there and I'd had some photos of the original equipment we'd used and stuff. And that was just, that was a bit of a moment. 
Yeah, that was really cool. The pandemic was yeah, and I got to do a wedding present one as a fan, which was cool yeah. as well. I listened into one of those, and yeah, so that. But listening to the album from that perspective was interesting because you, you're hearing it front to back. We've just done Sea Monsters with with a wedding present front to back. We just go out, play it, and then he goes hello with a wedding present, and that's a really interesting experience because it's forty three minutes of music nonstop, wow. and it's much more technical and and not difficult, but more precise to see but it's it's a different task it's a concentration job it's very artful for indie guitar music i feel and uh, yeah so that that idea of doing an album i really like it when we did smart i thought we should play around with the order and we should finish it in between rather than start with it but other than that it's been called to do that so you're gonna be doing the echo in full yeah front to back in summer, along with some more sea monster stuff with the sea monsters with the wedding present and the it girl with sleeper and um maybe a few festivals and it's just a very privileged position to be in to be honest with you and yeah just feel very lucky you've done a lot of work around the music business as a business um if you were made kind of president of the international music business for a week what laws would you create to make it more fair I think we need a way of monetizing what people create and then rewarding them. And music came up in an analog era with lots of different formats and tracing ownership became problematic. And that's just got more and more complex as different organizations have got involved and there's different ways of ministering different copyrights. And I think if I had the power and the resources... We'd start again from scratch and you can think what's achievable with NFTs and blockchain technology. Every version of every song would have, a, would have an ID. It would be one ID and the people who were involved with the writing and recording of it will be properly recorded and remunerated whenever it was used anywhere. And one of the challenges at the moment is not only getting companies like Spotify and other people who are streaming music to pay fairly but even when they do and i believe spotify pay the labels quite a lot of money to use the music it doesn't filter down to the people who created it and we're no longer in an age where you need a massive labels input to create music and have people interested in streaming it and i think we just need a way of remunerating is it remunerating it's remunerating people who are the creatives and if i had a magic wand that's what i'd make happen Obviously, I don't, and obviously, it's not going to happen. But ironically, we are now in an age where that's technologically possible. But sadly, we've got such a complex backstory of copyright, administration, and ownership, and it will be such a big job, it's never going to If a pianist is playing a part on a song and they're improvising it and they're working in the studio, do you think that they should get a songwriting credit? Yeah, good point. I don't know. We say different bands take different approaches, don't they? There's the melody and then the lyrics and then the top line melody and the chord structures. I think every situation is different. I think copyright is literally a social construct. It doesn't really exist. People say lots of things are social constructs nowadays. Whether or not they are, I'm not sure. Copyright certainly is. It's something we agree exists in order that we can acknowledge intellectual property. And every situation where a copyright is generated is different. It might be different working relationships. It might be somebody 
has one tiny contribution to a thing somebody else might have written the whole thing other than this one tiny little contribution so that moment of creativity and discovery and then assembling what whatever the artifact is there's some big decisions being made they're all different they're completely contextual and then we all go along with it such that we can say a song is owned by the person who wrote it there wasn't always copyrighted music some of the the great early songwriters is it david foster the american songwriter who wrote uh, camptown ladies and all that stuff died in poverty wrote hundreds of musical songs that we would know today that have still survived and died in the gutter in poverty so copyright's important hasn't always existed it's a, a fictional thing that we insert on top of artifacts to to allow us to have ownership of them but it doesn't outside of that it doesn't really exist it's not like a, a virus is a thing but you can find in the microscope you can't find the copyright in a song <laughs> in the microscope if you look at it closely enough so i would argue as a counter argument to that somewhere but maybe the pattern of the, the way it's, the music's written down or the pattern of the audio you could argue that there's a copyright in an individual recording that is made by the by the signal path in the same way that <laughs> something when you shazam something whatever that's picking up is the copyright so you could argue that there's a dna to it just as there is to a virus potentially but then you also have to all agree that ownership of something is possible so even then it's still it's still a we don't have to agree that a virus exists to catch a cold yeah. we are going to catch a cold we all have to agree that ownership of ideas exists in order to administer that ownership otherwise you just get uh sharing willy-nilly online as we currently do if yeah and in regards to kind of splits and what people what's fair and what's not fair what advice would you give to young bands now because there's probably been so much great music that's been lost and not been produced by bands because they've ended up split breaking up over this or bitter towards feeling that one member feels it's unfair and because there is no kind of hard and fast rule, it's pretty subjective. How do you navigate those waters? Are there any kind of principles that you have that you would advise to ensure that things can move forward? Yeah, I think you have to... Uh, I was mentioning earlier Andy McClure just basically being a very nice guy and then Louise being an incredibly creative writer and a brilliant... For me, she's one of the great lyricists of the last 30 years. So you need to work with creative people and you need to find nice people around that team such that you can work with yourselves as a group to get to a situation where not everybody might feel it's fair, but no one's feeling ripped off. So if you're feeling ripped off, it's not going to work creatively. No one's going to feel, yes, this is completely fair, but everyone's going to feel they're in a position where, okay, I can work with that. Many years ago, I was asked to write a book chapter for an advice book that somebody was putting together. And lots of the advice at the, at the college where I work, we get loads, we're lucky in a position to have loads of big industry guests in. And the most of the advice, the most common piece of advice, stand your ground, don't listen to people, believe in yourself, do push your own, forge your own path. And my advice for this book, I thought, okay, because that's not my advice is compromise. Take advice and compromise, and that's what great bands do. That 
it's a group of people working collectively and that involves com- always involves compromise most of the time so yeah learn how learn how have your vision but learn to take criticism and learn to compromise and through that you're then in the chance of doing what's right and getting the best out of it and doing what's right by the people around you so that would also be my advice in terms of songwriting you are sooner or later to compromise whether it's the arrangement of a song the ownership of the copyright how all that works so if you could put yourself in a position where that compromise is not too painful such that you can keep working creatively then you're going to be okay so many people get completely ripped off that they don't see anything from what they do and i have been in that situation with projects and that's heartbreaking but as as long as you can get to a position where you don't feel that you're in that pain and you can work then you're in a good place thank you what underrated skill do you think every musician should have yeah i'm not very good at listening to other people and i think that's a really important skill music's a dialogue between creative people and you need to be able to listen to what other people are doing and i've always been useless at listening and playing the notes is one thing having a good technique sounding great is one thing but also doing that in the context of what other people are doing is equally as important so listening to what the people around you are doing and saying and that way you can contribute effectively once you understand what their goal is you can then contribute something that's going to be aligned with what they're trying to do Mm. you can having that sense of self-awareness you can take what you want to do with the track and put it alongside what they want to do with the track and make something great Love it. Followed that. Yes, the final question, because it's nice to reflect back on your career. If you could be in the audience for one gig that you played and relive the experience from the audience's perspective, which gig would you pull out? We did a show with Sleeper. It was the original four-piece lineup at the Shepherd Bush Empire. I think it was just before the It Girl came out. It was the tour for the What Do I Do Now single and someone filmed it from the desk and that's on youtube i found it recently on youtube and it's just an amazing gig that's the one i would have been in i've been lucky enough to watch it and i'd never really appreciated because i'd been friends with louise for so long and andy i just i'd never really appreciated what an absolute rock goddess she was and that particular show she's just on fire i think it's the one where she catches the pants Someone throws some pants and she catches them with one hand and then just discards them on stage. And that was a, not to say that we're pants, but that was like a Tom Jones women throwing the knickers at it moment because I think she'd mentioned that in an interview. And But just the look and sound of everything and the, the audience just going crazy, crowd surfing. There must have been 20 or 30 people going over the top and, yeah... So that one, unfortunately, I've been able to watch it since and it was great fun. So what's plans for the rest of the year? So wedding present, doing stuff as well as sleeper touring as well? Yeah, recording with a wedding present, doing some singles, one single a month for the year. We've got a tour of the anniversary of Sea Monsters, which is an incredible album to play. And then I've got the It Girl tour with Sleeper. And I run a master's course at Beer Institute in Brighton, if anybody wants to come and do a master's in popular music practice. We have entrepreneurship and performance and songwriting, streams and production 
that's great fun. So I'll still be doing that, obviously. And um, promoting the book. Well, thank you for your wisdom and your honesty and your insight. And I learned so much in the last couple of days just reading the book and talking to you about Dylan and Len. And I thought I knew a fair bit before. So thank you for all the research you've done on that and sharing it. Where can we get the book? It's available on all good booksellers and some of the bad ones as well, like Amazon, obviously. it's if For an academic book, it's very competitively priced. It's under 20 quid for the hardback, which is which is very good of Cambridge University Press to do that because often they can be ridiculous, sometimes ridiculously expensive. So, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I think it's a good read and I enjoyed putting it together and licensing the lyrics and the pictures that are in it. And there's some new things about Dylan and Lennon, which was quite hard to find. Some of the pictures and the, the discussions of when they met and when they didn't meet and the, the song that they never wrote together that some people think they did, which you can now hear on Spotify. Just examining the legend, really. It was a, a really good project to do, and it's unlike the bands. That's The book is all me. That's the difference, I guess. There's no front person in the book. <laughs> Dr John Stewart, thanks for being such a great guest on the Stage of Podcast. Thank you for having me. This episode was mixed and edited by Bastian Hughes, B-A-S-T-I-A-N-H-U-E-S. And that's little Eliza Day, my baby, four-month-old, who's making a bit of noise in the background, giving a uh, endorsement to Bastian. You should get in touch with him on Instagram, whether you need support with your mixing, your editing, your scoring, or your website design, B-A-S-T-I-A-N-H-U-E-S. He's doing a great job. 